Somebody Somewhere is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. This podcast investigates a murder that occurred in 2001. It is a true story, but the opinions of the hosts and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. And the credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Previously on Somebody Somewhere. It was definitely pop, 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 pop. He told me one time the word on the street is that there was a hitman that killed Tom. This is Emily. Hello. Oh, this is Emily? Sorry. You know me. Hi, I was trying to reach Mikel. Is he there? This is episode three, A Man Named Kimball. I'm your host, David Payne. We'll never give up our search for the truth. We will never have no give idea. Up. It could have been a, a vacuum cleaner sales. It is beyond spectacular. I never thought I'd be here. Fifteen years later. What was the owner's name? I think it was Michaela Zacco. What I do know is that when Michaela Zacco told me the information that he had heard on the street that Tom's killer was a sniper from Eastern Europe, I called the hotline for the FBI, left a message, left a number, told him who I was, and never heard back. Never heard back from him. So I have a confession to make. I didn't dive into this case to throw shade or lay blame on anyone. It's just not my nature. I had worked many moons ago myself in law enforcement as an assistant United States attorney, just like Tom Wales. So my predisposition was to be supportive of the FBI's efforts. But we have a saying in the law called race ipsa loquitur, which quite literally means the thing speaks for itself. And as Jody and I kept turning over rocks in this case, as we kept asking what was done and what wasn't done, the thing that kept coming back to us was, with all the federal resources available in this case, why hasn't there been an arrest? Ray Sipsa. Now, back to the case. Tom Wells was alone at his home on Queen Anne Hill in Seattle on the night of October 11, 2001. Recently divorced, he was an empty nester and his kids were studying overseas. As he settled into his basement office to do emails and drink a glass of red wine, someone walked up to the window outside and shot him in cold blood. He was 49 years old. Our independent investigation into his murder some 16 years later was off to a cold start. Thank you for calling me off, ma'am. Hi, good afternoon. Is uh, McKinnell Zacco working today? And if so, like, what hours you guys open? Who? Zacco, McKell? McKaylee oh. no longer works for the company. Oh, he doesn't. Do you know where he went? That I do not know. Over the next couple of months, Jody and I would crisscross the city of Seattle, searching for Zacco and what he might be able to tell us about the hit put out on Tom Wales. 
a hunt that involved multiple addresses and multiple aliases. At one of these addresses, despite our best intentions, we startle a young woman on her front porch. We later learn she's a teacher who has just come home from school. The woman recovers quickly when she determines we're pretty harmless. And when we ask if she's seen Mikkel, she offers to just pass our information along. The next morning, I receive a curious email in my inbox. Did you get that email I sent? I just walked in the door. I wanted to read it. I was given your contact information and told you were looking for me regarding a case. I gave you a call earlier as well. Can I ask what this is about specifically? Who is Miguel Hernandez? Miguel, I think, is Mikkel. As would happen more than once, though, that was wrong. One of the many dead-end leads that we would encounter on our travels. Always undaunted, though, Jody finds us another address to check out, down in Federal Way, Washington. Starting route to Federal Way. Proceed to the route, then turn left. Let's go. We arrive at a nice-looking apartment complex, better looking, frankly, than some of its occupants. An old Chrysler with four teenagers rolls slowly by, checking us out. They probably think we're the police, although we're actually just the trespassers here. Jody and I find a parking spot in the resident-only lot, and we make our way to the below-ground apartment we believe might be Zacco's. Doesn't look like anybody's here. Let's go to the office and see if we can ask. Got it. No one is home, but like a bad game of Clue, items left scattered chaotically outside his front door taunt us with unanswered meaning. A dry but open umbrella, a pink children's bike, and a full-body heavy bag, the kind used by mixed martial artists, with a red heart target on the chest. With no help at the office we decide to flaunt the no trespassing signs, scampering down a muddy slope to see if we can see in the rear windows. Is anyone there? Doesn't look like anyone's there. No one's here. Completely cleaned out. Neighbors begin to peer out from drawn curtains as we tramp through the common backyard. We spy an older woman who is taking an interest in our intrusion. She's smoking low-tar camels, and through the haze we ask, if she knows what happened to the residents in apartment 101F. She was interesting. So she has seen the, the um, she's seen Mikkel, and she's seen his granddaughter, but she didn't recognize the wife. Huh. Yeah, let's um, try to figure out our next steps here. I think we should get out of here before the police come. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Deep in flight and quick afoot, we decide to try the front gate intercom on the way out. Hello? Hi, I was trying to reach Mikkel. Is he there? I'm sorry, who is this? Hi, my name's Jody. I'm a producer, and I wondered if I could speak with you about a project I'm doing. Um, ma'am, I'm in a foreign country right now. Oh, yeah. Okay, when will you be back? Christmas, 
With Mikel Zacco out of the country, we're stuck on proceeding with that lead. So we decided to put a pin in that avenue for now. And we turn our attention to another lead we've learned about that is frankly too intriguing not to explore. This one involves an inmate in Alaska who claimed in 2001 to have information on who killed Tom Wales. As FBI agents in Seattle began working the Wales case 16 years ago, they received a tip from one of their colleagues in the Alaska field office. An agent named Colton Steele had been summoned to the Anchorage jail to investigate a report about an inmate who had information about the Wales murder, as well as another unrelated murder plot known as the Flowers case. This inmate claimed that he had been listening in on conversations of other inmates, and he wanted to cut a deal. Get him transferred to his home state of Colorado, and he would give up the goods on what these inmates were saying. Despite the skepticism that always goes into these types of bargains, this guy was good. He was convincing. And when they administered a polygraph on him, he passed. The FBI bit, and they set in motion a plan to get the inmate transferred to Denver to begin work as their informant. The FBI's case agent in Denver, the man who would become the inmate's handler, was a man named Carl Schloff. Schloff is no longer with the FBI, and Jody tracks him down to a sporting goods store in Conifer, Colorado. After a couple of short calls explaining to Agent Schloff what we want to talk about, we arranged to speak one morning when Jody and I happened to be up in Canada, researching yet another bizarre angle in the case. More about that later. Hello. Hey, it's Carl. Hey, Carl. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You? I'm great. Thank you for calling me back. I appreciate that. No fishing today? No, fixing uh, mom and dad's fruit. Schlaff is friendly and open, and he engages easily in conversation. His phone personality and tenor contrast sharply with the FBI stereotypes I've known over the years. I want to know about this mysterious Alaskan inmate, a man named Kimball and his connection to the Wales case. We're re-looking at the Wales case from top to bottom and was doing some research and came across this crazy Kimball connection. And I was just really dying to know what Kimball told the FBI or you about the Wales case. Um, you know, Kimball was a, he's your typical kind of criminal. When he gets up in a jam, he wants to work his way out of it. Okay, he was up in Anchorage, so Secret Service arrested him on a counterfeit check case. And while he was up there, he was listening to inmates. A couple of inmates wanted to kill an AUSA up there on their case. But one of the guy, one of the things he was talking about up there was some connection to Wales. Uh, a guy, I think, I'm remembering a guy named Jeremiah. Any of your notes reflect that? Our notes are, in fact, surprisingly devoid of anyone named Jeremiah. Heck, we're still trying to figure out where Zako is. And now we've got another one named Wonder to track down, too. Clearly, there is more to do. And Jody and I start digging to learn more about Jeremiah, this Kimball guy, and whether his cooperation secured any evidence pointing to Tom Wales' killer. Kimball is currently locked up outside of Denver, serving a 48-year sentence for fraud. And it seemed to us 
that the answers to our questions would lie somewhere on the other side of the Rockies. From the flight deck, first officer Cabral speaking. We are number three for departure. Lauren, please get down to your seat. We arrive in Denver in early fall, seeing the first snow-capped peaks of the season breaking through the clouds. It's chilly here. The leaves are a bright orange. And we've forgotten gloves in our haste to track down this Kimball-slash-Jeremiah lead. We make our way to the Boulder County Courthouse, a modern building that houses both courtrooms and the DA's office. We've come to talk to the people responsible for putting Kimball in jail. Just pop you guys on and get a mic check, and then... I unplugged that. You did? I did, sir. All right, gentlemen, if you could talk... All right, we're ready. We'll get started because I know you're a man pressed for time. Sure. So some context on... Stan Garnett is the elected DA in Boulder County. I asked him how he made his way to this position of authority and responsibility in this town of 300,000 people. um, Why don't you just, so I have it down, just give me the quick bio of Stan Garnett. Sure. And uh, how long have you been here? How long have you been the DA and so forth? Sure. I've been a lawyer 35 years. I grew up in... (laughs) Condolences. I grew up in Boulder, went to high school here. My dad went to high school here. I uh, was a deputy district attorney in Denver from 1982 to 86, then I ran a litigation... D.A. Garnett is straight out of central casting, with broad shoulders, neatly parted in trim brown hair, a chiseled jaw, and the obligatory white shirt, blue striped tie, and navy suit that prosecutors seem to favor. I ask him, what first comes to mind when I mention Kimball's name? Kimball, at his core, is a con man. He's a very, very good con man. He can walk into almost any situation, I think, try to size it up and figure out how to con whoever's involved. Highly intelligent. I think he's very intelligent. Narcissistic. Yeah, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm never quite sure what, you know, terms like narcissism mean to experts. His life was all about him and clearly about power. We've come here, of course, not just to talk about this Kimball guy, but to discover what he told the FBI regarding the Wales case. I'm hoping that away from Seattle where there's so much sensitivity in talking about it, that D.A. Garnett will share what he knows with us. Let's go back to 2003, which is before, I understand, before your time, but I want to get your take on this. A Rule 20 motion was filed that essentially enabled the transfer of Kimball out of Alaska to Colorado to continue working as an FBI informant. Can you talk about what happened in that situation? Well, that is several years before I became familiar with the case. I don't know exactly what happened there, and the FBI, the U.S. attorney, may be able to answer more. But it was clear to me in looking back on it, once we realized what had happened, that um, there had been a failure of the protocols of the U.S. attorney to really evaluate the risk involved here, and that that led to some tragic consequences. It does seem like... As Garnett is talking in these politically correct terms, quote, failure of protocols and, quote, tragic consequences, I am reminded that he is an elected official after all, one who must be guarded in openly criticizing other law enforcement agencies. Nevertheless, I press forward with my questions. 
What was his general pitch in when he was trying to convince people? Was it that he had met somebody in jail and, you know, he was good at getting information out of people? And what, what was the basic you know, you'll, you'll have to talk to Katarina more about that because she has more contact with that. However, my impression was he pretty much tried all the standard pitches from, you know, my cellmate told me X, Y, and Z to others. And we in law enforcement get fairly accustomed to that kind of pitch, and we have our protocols to try to figure out who's telling the truth and who isn't. I'm going to pivot just a little The Katarina he wants me to talk to is his deputy, Katarina Booth. And you can tell that while Garnett's the top dog here, he's a good boss because he repeatedly showers praise on the work of both Booth and her former colleague, Amy Akubo, as well as Colorado State Investigator Gary Thatcher. The three of them, he says, are the ones we should talk to and who can really fill us in on the whole Kimball story. And so we do. My name is Katarina Booth, and I started in the district attorney's office in 1995 to 96 as a law clerk. I'm now the first assistant district attorney, which means I'm second under Stan Garnett, the elected district attorney in this jurisdiction. I have been Based on her bio, I calculate Booth to be in her early to mid-40s. But without those self-volunteered data points, I would have guessed late 30s. I want to understand the nature of these failures of protocol that Garnett has talked about and how those may have impacted the Wales murder investigation. To put a finer point on it, I want to know if the FBI's failure to close the case is in any way related to wanting to bury the tragic consequences following their mishandling of this informant, a man named Scott Lee Kimball. Let's go back in time. Okay. And I wonder if you can remember when you first became aware of Scott Kimball. I can absolutely remember. It was July of 2004. It was an accident involving his son, Justin. Specifically, what was originally reported by Scott was that while on the Huron property, a very large metal grate or a cattle grate had fallen on top of Justin and had severely injured him. Justin is Scott Kimball's 11-year-old son. And so he was rushing him to the hospital. Justin somehow miraculously opened the door and started to fall out of the passenger door. And while Scott was driving, Justin started to fall and he reached to his right, grabbed Justin, but Justin fell and his head was hitting the concrete of the asphalt. And I remember thinking, oh, that's just an awful, horrible story. Did you feel the pain as a parent might feel the pain? Was that kind of your first? Sure. Yeah, just I can't even imagine. But nothing that necessarily suspicious about it in those first thoughts. It wasn't until a couple weeks later. A few weeks later, police would learn that Scott Kimball had updated the beneficiary on his son's life insurance policy to name himself. And your antenna went straight up. Everyone's did. It was shortly thereafter, Justin came out of... He had been on a ventilator, and he began making some statements that were questioning whether or not it was an accident or not. When I hear you talk about the case, the thing that sticks with me is your first impression of the case and what happened to the boy. Mm-hmm. And it seems like that was really the catalyst for you. It was my motivation. You. I've never forgotten that, and I still, and you'll, this is where you'll get me going. I feel incredibly saddened because I don't think Justin ever got his justice. Justice. It's an elusive thing, something we seek for Tom Wales and something that Katarina Booth so obviously sought for a young boy she had never met. 
but whom she believed had been bludgeoned and nearly murdered by his own father. Sitting in the conference room that doubles as a training room in the courthouse, Katarina then recounts the emotional roller coaster of a story that developed over many years. In one of the few bright notes in this story, Booth would later fall in love with and marry police detective Gary Thatcher while working the case. And as Katarina begins recounting the tale, she offers up her husband to talk to us as well. Hey, it's Katarina. Can you find Gary for me? Over the line, like a good husband, we hear Gary ultimately agree to join this gathering in the conference room. You don't have to if you don't want to. I'm just telling you. Bye. So I'm Gary Thatcher. I'm now a senior investigator here at the uh, 20th Judicial District Attorney's Office. I was formerly with Lafayette Police Department when I started working the Scott Kimball case. Gary's a stocky guy, athletic with salt and pepper hair. I'm guessing he's early 40s, too. And based on his build, he probably played linebacker in his youth. I asked him how he came to be involved in the Kimball case. It was initially a stolen check and trailer theft report that was made at our office. I was a white-collar crime detective at the time. I was brand new, and I got assigned to that. And as I started uncovering the check fraud forgery, I started learning more and more about Scott Kimball. And his wife told me that he's an FBI agent, which I found astonishing. An agent? An agent. And uh, she told me he was paid by the FBI. She thought he was an agent. He had a laptop. He had a gun. The laptop had an FBI seal on it. You know, she fully thought that he worked for the FBI. Kimball's wife at the time, the woman who thought that Kimball was an undercover FBI agent, was 39-year-old Lori McLeod. Lori had a 19-year-old daughter named Casey from her prior husband. Well, when I'm looking for him, I'm talking to Lori, I'm doing interviews with Lori, and she tells me that her daughter's also missing. And so... It's kind of one of those things that doesn't normally come up in a check fraud forgery case. It was clear that she was suspicious of Scott. And uh, she thought that Scott was the only person that could get her daughter back for her. And it just was very fishy. And it was just, it was obvious that he probably had everything to do with it. So right away, your antenna up that you have something other than just, you know, a, a bad check passer. Correct. Meanwhile, Gary starts to go talk to other people, Casey's boyfriend at the time, and Casey's boyfriend also says Scott's an FBI agent. I've seen his creds. I've seen the seal on his computer. So that's when Gary first starts understanding or thinking what's going on and who is this Scott Kimball. I've got him as a suspect in things, but everybody keeps telling me he's working for the FBI. So Gary, Detective Thatcher, calls the FBI. Obviously, when I called the FBI, they said, no, he's an informant. He's not an agent. Who'd you call the FBI? Give me a sense of that time frame. Carl Schlaff is who I talked to at the FBI. When I had that initial conversation with Carl Schlaff, that's when he informed me that Scott was a witness in another disappearance of another female by the name of Jennifer Markham, and uh, that they also had their suspicions about Scott. So, are you keeping up here? We weren't. This whole thing was starting to stink to high heaven. We've got a guy named Kimball, who in the early 2000s is claiming he's an FBI agent, who's married to a missing girl's mother, who's suspected in trying to kill his own son, 
who's a, quote, witness in another disappearance of another woman and who's been transferred out of an Alaska jail to work with the FBI on figuring out who killed Tom Wales. Tom Wales was killed in October of 2001. Now we learn that a guy with less than sterling credentials claimed in December of 2001 that he had knowledge about the Wales killing, and he parlayed that into a get-out-of-jail card in Denver to help the FBI. I asked Kimball's handler, Agent Carl Schloth, what he could share about what Kimball was doing for the FBI on the Wales case. One of the things he was talking about up there was some connection to Wales. A guy, I think, if I'm remembering, a guy named Jeremiah. Any of your notes reflect that? I don't have that name. Yeah, we're talking now, uh, good, let's see, it's 2017, 2002, so we're at 15-year mark with my memory. But I'm remembering some guy that basically had been talking up there in Alaska that he he had been involved in um, the Wales murder. So... I basically just, the agent in uh, Anchorage that was handling Kimball coordinated with Seattle. And long story short, when Kimball got out on bond, he did some work in Seattle for those guys on the Wales case to try to attempt to corroborate the uh, information Kimball was providing. I wanted to know what kind of work Kimball would be doing for the FBI's Seattle office. Back to the uh, Wales piece of that, Uh what he told them about the Wales case, is that what got him transferred to Seattle? Well, he actually got him transferred to Denver, but I would send him to Seattle to work with Seattle guys on the case. When he first got out on the Secret Service case in Alaska, his number one task, as far as we were concerned, was the Wales case. So everything else was a back burner he was sent to Denver for his own safety since they're all housed together. And his number one priority being out on the street was to work with the Seattle guys, Seattle, specifically Seattle FBI, on the information he was providing on the Wales death investigation. And what was that? That was related to the Jeremiah? Yeah, I think Jeremiah was out of custody and, you know, doing consensual recordings and and wearing a wire, stuff like that. You know, kind of the typical, you supposedly got a guy who's talking about prior criminal acts, unindicted prior criminal acts, and he has tried to get him to give more detail. In the hunt for Wales Killer, the FBI was chasing every lead, and there were a lot of them. Was Kimball or Jeremiah a real one? Or was it another rabbit hole, another wild goose chase? And just who exactly had the FBI gotten into bed with? So we were kind of running that down, but things were stacking up. You know, it's the doctrine of chances. How many times does the last person you're with is Scott Kimball and then all of a sudden you're missing? You know, as time passed, people learned a lot more about Scott than what they had initially reported. So we found that most of our interviews were pretty fruitful as far as new evidence. And so, yeah, I mean, it just kept leading to new doors. We caught another, I guess if you want to call it a break or a weird circumstance, they're re-interviewing Jennifer's boyfriend, who was Steve Ennis. 
as they're interviewing Steve Ennis, literally on the way out the door, Steve says, hey, by the way, you guys might want to talk to Stephen Hawley. Hawley was cellmates with, they called him Hannibal. Scott's name was Hannibal. His nickname was cellmates with Hannibal. And guess what? His girlfriend hasn't been seen either. A third girl missing. And the common denominator, Scott Lee Kimball. What was your initial reaction when you heard about some of the things that had gone on with Kimball? And, and, particularly, well, and, yeah. and particularly the FBI's I was uh, pretty shocked. I was pretty shocked to find that uh, Mr. Kimball had been out. Well, I was very concerned by that, to find out that he'd been an informant and uh, that during his time as an informant, some of the homicides we were looking into had occurred. Katarina's partner in the DA's office on the Kimball case, ADA Amy Akubo, was even more blunt. So we became aware that he had been working for them as an informant and that during the time he had gotten out of prison to be an informant for them is when he committed all of this crime and when he was murdering people. And What happened when you learned that? Do you remember your reaction? You know, unbelie- it's unbelievable. It's just sort of par for who Scott Kimball was. Every prosecutor knows that jailhouse snitching is probably the least reliable right. of information you can get. But he had something that was reliable, right? But then he spun it into something more that gained him the advantage. Yeah. We've been looking at this case for two months. We can't figure out what it was that he could possibly have told them to get out. Well, and then his handler just really didn't do his job and didn't get that he didn't do his job, is what I recall. No self-awareness about it. Schlaff, whatever, however. Yeah, he, even as we were investigating it, he did not understand that he had made mistakes. Agent Schlaff, though, does now acknowledge these mistakes when we talk. Now that he's left the FBI, he had gotten conned, too. So I wanted to know what had caused everyone to bite so hard on Kimball's initial claim about Jeremiah. He had to have told them something beyond what was in the papers at the time. I would imagine so, because, you know, they spent some time on him. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously the Wales case, we're going to throw a lot more resource and, and whatnot at something like that than kind of an average, you know, murder on the street. But, you know, Kimball had a history of providing pretty good information. So, you know, he's in Alaska. How does he even know about the Wales case? Right. It's not going to make news in the Anchorage news, I don't think. I don't think. Even if it made news, right, you would have your antenna up on a case like that. That, you know, whatever's publicly reported, anybody could get. Yeah, so somebody said something up there. I don't doubt somebody said something up there in Alaska while they're sitting around when they're eating lunch about it. The media went after me on Kimball because he went sideways and they said, well, Agent Schlopp didn't do anything. It's clear because there's nothing in the court files. Well, he pled guilty without going through discovery. And so there's really not, the only thing that's in kind of court files are affidavits. And, you know, clearly we don't put our entire investigative, you know, action in an affidavit for a search warrant or they didn't even do an arrest warrant. He was already in custody on a violation of uh, parole. So it was just a matter of what are you going to plead guilty to during negotiations? So there's not, you know, there's not a huge file out there in the public world, in the, you know, public dissemination. He's right. There isn't much about this out there. And I wondered why. 
You see, not only had the FBI been conned by Kimball, so had the U.S. Attorney's Office. They were the ones who had signed off on the plan and consented to the transfer and release of Kimball from Alaska. So he could help them with the Flowers case in Alaska, the Wales case, and eventually two other cases. And then they had all the court transcripts related to Kimball sealed for his protection. These documents would not be unsealed until years later when the Boulder newspaper, the Daily Camera, and CBS News pressed for their release. Jody and I tracked down one of the AUSAs who was involved in the release of Kimball. My name is Bill Taylor, and I'm currently an IT consultant. From 2000 to 2006, I was a federal prosecutor in the District of Colorado. Taylor describes a fact pattern all too common in the handling of case files by prosecutors. Jackets floating from attorney to attorney, often right before appearing in court. In our research, and with the help of Denver attorney Ashley Kissinger, we had uncovered the sealed transcripts relating to these court proceedings, and I send them to Taylor to refresh his recollection. I think I was in front of the court on the matter of Mr. Kimball's work as a confidential informant for the FBI on two occasions. I only recalled two hearings, and I only saw two transcripts, and that, that was consistent with my memory. Do you remember when you first encountered Scott Kimball? Just before the first hearing. I can't tell you exactly when, but I, uh, I inherited the file from two other assistants in the office, one of whom had been my subordinate, and he had left the office right as the matter was getting teed up by the FBI, who was looking for court permission to use him as a confidential informant. Were you present for any meetings between the FBI and Kimball? I was. Before I went to court, I asked to meet with him. I kind of wanted to get a sense of, some basic sense of who he was before I went to court with the FBI agent. And was that with Agent Schlaff? Mm-hmm. It was. Did you ever meet or talk with any other FBI agents regarding the case, regarding Kimball? I don't recall meeting anybody else. I did, after I left the government, I was interviewed about the matter by representatives of the Justice Department. Were they asking about the FBI's handling of Kimball? Yes, they were. What was the nature of that inquiry? Just that. They were asking me questions about how the FBI handled the matter. Taylor doesn't remember a lot about what at the time was merely an interruption in his day being asked to stand in for a fellow AUSA. But he does remember his reaction to meeting Kimball. Had you remembered Kimball? Well, absolutely. I mean, you can't can't forget this guy. Why? I'd love to hear more why. Oh, I, I mean, you've seen pictures of him. I met him once. I was present while Agent Schloff asked him some questions about the intended scope of his work as a confidential informant. And I walked out of that meeting having some fairly profound concerns about him and about the case. And this is the one exchange that I remember with the DOJ investigators. I told them I deferred to the FBI. They knew him. They knew the case. Agent Schloff was convinced that this fellow would be key to drawing admissions out from other suspects on this homicide, you know, the killing of a potential witness in the drug case. But based on everything that I had learned from Agent Schloff in about 45 minutes to an hour of being briefed on this matter by him before I met with Kimball, I remember telling uh, Agent Schloff that I thought it was equally likely that Kimball himself would make some admission that only, you know, about a fact that only the killer would know. Wow. 
So you, in that 45 minutes, already picked up a vibe that Kimball might have been involved in the killing. Well, I didn't like the fact that he was the last person to see the victim alive. And, you know, you don't have to be a federal prosecutor. You just need to watch television to to know that, you know, that's a significant fact. And I was concerned that Agent Schlaff wasn't very seriously considering the possibility that, you know, the reason Kimball knew some things about this is that he might have been involved. How did Schlaff react to that observation? Uh, He laughed. He laughed. He laughed and poo-pooed me. We couldn't believe what we were hearing, but were we getting too far afield? So here's what we knew. The FBI clearly had a major screw-up on their hands in the mismanagement of Scott Kimball. And the U.S. Attorney's Office had consented to his release, even with serious reservations about whether Kimball was a killer. And DOJ investigators were slowly piecing these bad facts together at the exact same time they were actively investigating the Wales case. It does seem like the U.S. attorney here took the word of a single FBI agent in Alaska to validate or verify that this was a person worth taking this risk with. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly uh, what uh, was relied on, but I do think in hindsight, and I was not shy about saying it at the time, that it was an error of judgment to believe that Mr. Kimball could be out safely as an informant. And how they made the determination... I have no doubt, knowing Scott Kimball, a big amount of it was his charm, his manipulation in making the presentation to whoever he was dealing with in Alaska. Was it possible that this error of judgment was so egregious that DOJ would think twice about bringing a prosecution in the Wales case where these facts would surely come to light? And before we put away our conspiracy hats on this subject, We have one more line of inquiry that we need to put to rest. You see, it was reported that Scott Lee Kimball, the con man who got out of jail to work as an FBI informant and then killed four people, was in Seattle on October 11, 2001, the day Tom Wales was murdered. What do you know about his firearm expertise? So, I mean, we know that he was an outfitter in Montana, so he was an avid hunter. He hunted a lot with his dad, so he's going to be pretty experienced with a rifle, hunting rifle specifically, not necessarily assault rifle, and then uh, handguns. We know that he's comfortable with a handgun. Um, Any particular type? I couldn't tell you right off the top of my head what the, the gun was that we recovered. I, uh, you, is that right? Um, that doesn't sound familiar to me. It's possible. Uh, kind of the nine millimeter. It was a nine millimeter semi-automatic. Yeah, yep. just your typical run-of-the-mill semi-automatic uh, nine millimeters. What he had. Could it be possible that Kimball was more involved than just overhearing a conversation, as he claimed? Was he the hired hitman? We ask ADA Booth point blank. I'm just curious about his crimes and the women that were involved. Were you aware of anything that tied him to the Wales case that you can remember? There's nothing that I can speak about. I knew that he had that uh, had been informing on that. Anything else I don't think I would be allowed to speak about on that particular investigation. So it sounds like you but know something, thought, but you can't say. What I thought what say. the question was, what I thought you were going to say, is I was just going to say that I think Scott's capable of doing anything. He'll kill anybody for whatever reason that it suits him at the moment. Financial, sexually, 
legally. I mean, who knows? It doesn't take much, I think, for him. Yeah, he claimed to be in Seattle at the time of the whale's killing. Did any of your investigation reveal? I'm not going to answer that one for you. Sorry. Because you know and you can't say, or it was outside of your jurisdiction? I'm still not going to answer that one for you. Sorry. I've done a lot of your questions. You have. You have. I would never want to jeopardize anything about that investigation. Have you ever seen anyone like that in your career? No, in my opinion, Scott Kimball is a monster and uh, is as serious a monster as I've ever run across in my 35 years of lawyering. And I think is probably the most serious uh, violent criminal that we've produced here in Boulder County in the 140 years or whatever since uh, statehood. He's a horrible, horrible person and uh, uh, it's a horrible story. Kimball remains locked up in Colorado. Booth and Akubo squeezed him on a plea deal that will have him in jail for at least 48 years. And soon after we get back from Denver, I get a Google alert. He's just been indicted yet again, this time for an escape and murder attempt from prison. Whether Kimball had anything valuable to offer the FBI, whether he was involved in the whales killing, is something we may never know. But we can know something for certain. If Scott Lee Kimball has any more cards to play on that front, he surely will. Next week on Somebody Somewhere, where would they have started in this case? In any homicide, you're going to start with family. You get a lot of blowback from gun rights extremists and a lot of threats. Well, I just couldn't imagine that anyone would murder him. Do you remember who in Seattle FBI was his main contact? Would that have been Bone or Sousa? Life's a foolish game. Do you ever feel the same? Well, maybe we could change. Turn the ship another way. Somebody Somewhere is written and produced by Jody Gottlieb and me. It is a production of Rainstream Media Incorporated. Sound design, editing, and mixing has been provided by Resonate Recordings. If you're making your first podcast or if you're a seasoned veteran, it doesn't matter. These guys are both professional and personable, and we couldn't have done this show without them. Check them out at ResonateRecordings.com. Original score and voiceover work provided by Hallie Payne. A Foolish Game is written and performed by Snowflake. If you have any information regarding the Tom Wales case, please contact us via our website, sbswpodcast.com. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like and rate us on iTunes. It really helps. Thank you for listening. <laughs>